Chapter Twenty of Entrapped by Alice Mangold Deal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That journey from the Riviera to England was like a dream to Zoe. She only seemed to awaken when, after it appeared to her as if she had lived in trains and cabins of vessels for weeks, watched over from afar by her cousin, who manifested his solicitude by a dozen different delicate attentions. He said with a certain triumph, as the train halted at the station he told her they would alight at, and he opened the door of their reserved compartment and sprang out, Welcome, my dearest cousin, to your new home. He had purposely planned the words to rouse her, for she seemed to have sunk into a mental apathy, which, when he had joined her at Dover and travelled in the same carriage, had considerably alarmed him. And, with a thrill of satisfaction, he noted that they brought a more living look into her dulled eyes. Home? Where? What home do you mean? I have none, she almost angrily returned. Anger awakened memory and reason. I beg your pardon, she pathetically said. I am terribly ungrateful. You are everything you ought to be, dear, said Quarles, assisting her to alight. Then, after hailing a sleepy-looking porter and giving directions for the luggage which the guard was hauling out to be brought down, he gave her his arm. Your godmother is in a different position now, fortunately, he told her, as he escorted her down a wooden staircase to the station yard, where a smart-looking groom was in waiting, and he signed to the coachman. I will tell you as we are driving to the Grange. The clouds seemed to disperse from Zoe's weary brain, Suddenly she awakened to the actual surroundings of her changed life. She saw the brave-looking, stalwart form of her protector cousin as he leisurely talked with the coachman in farm livery who had climbed down from his driving seat, and who emphasised his replies by repeated touches of his hat. She thought what a tower of strength he looked to lean against. Then she glanced at the elms budding greenly above the blossoming hedges, she heard the distant rumble of the train as a diapason accompaniment to the songs of some thrushes in the garden of the station-master's cottage. How pretty it was, the white cottage with the red-tiled roof! She sniffed at the scent of the lilac trees and the hyacinths in the well-kept garden. She knew it was the station-master's. He came down the stairs, and, after a word with her cousin, opened the little wooden gate and passed in. The red-faced porter came down, her trunks, how she loathed the sight of them, on his back. They were hauled into a light cart by a youth sitting patiently on the seat. What did it all mean? Come, dear, said her cousin, offering her his arm, and leading her to the broom door like some precious creature which could crumble into dust at a breath. Then he helped her in, took his seat at her side, and they drove briskly off. Leaning back against the cushions, inhaling the sweet, cool spring breath of English fields, hedgerows, blossoming orchards and gardens, a new love of life seemed to kindle within her. It is like a fairy tale, she told herself with inward passion, and he, he is the prince. No sooner had the thought crossed her mind than she severely rebuked herself. She, an abandoned wife, an outraged woman, to dream of joys? Some ancestral legacy of Puritan austerity stifled her incipient heartening, awakened by the joy-laden spring atmosphere and the unconscious delight within her, delightful comfort, rather, of the welcome surprise of her dear, suffering godmother's good fortune. 
She turned to Quarles as they drove between the high hedges of the country road. "'What do you mean my godmother is in a different position?' she sharply asked. "'What I say, my dear child,' he returned, gazing honestly into her troubled eyes. "'Do you think I should have taken you to a penurious establishment, such as she herself told me hers had been, with her widowed sister? They are both in different circumstances. They have a very charming little place called Redwood Grange, your future home. This is their carriage.' If you want to know the why and wherefore, they will tell you better than I can. Look, that is the house. I did not know you could see it from here. He pulled the check-string and ordered the coachman to halt. Then he pointed out a grey stone gabled house, just visible between the trees, with ivy and magnolia climbing about its walls and around the mullioned windows. A grey column of smoke rose steadily from one of the tall chimneys. About the house were laurels, yews, box-trees, clipped into quaint shapes. A cedar half hid the frontage. It was a typical old English home. "'Do you like it?' he asked, turning to her. Tears were in her eyes. Her heart melted with the joy of knowing the good woman who had been her devoted protectress housed in so congenial a fashion. Still, she was inwardly rebellious, because she was suspicious. "'It is absurd to ask me. Of course I do.' she almost pettishly replied would he never lose patience with her she wondered as without resenting her asperity or seeming aware of it he gave his order to miss vigor's coachman to proceed then they halted before a gate the coachman clambered down opened it and climbing to his seat again drove in along a gravel drive halting before a porch decked with hanging trails of ivy where a little lady in widow's weeds stood looking anxious, her lined, working features a direct contrast to the smooth, pleasant face of a white-capped maidservant in the background. "'My dearest Zoe, Susan will be so happy. Thank you so much, Mr. Quarles, for bringing her,' uttered the little widow brokenly, and, clasping one of Zoe's hands with two bird-like little claws, she drew her gently through a low-sealed hall furnished with old oak to a corridor ending in a stained-glass window, from which ascended the shallow old staircase with its broad balustrade. Here she opened a door. Zoe found herself in a long, low-sealed room. The broad beams told of age as well as oak-panelled walls, on which hung oil paintings of long ago. She only noted vaguely that the rich Persian carpet, the carved high-backed chairs, the massive table, the sideboard crowded with plate, made up a picture fit for an artist's brush, when, at the end of the room where there was a wide bay window, she saw a recumbent figure on a big couch, and on the pile of cushions the sweet, pale, thin, and wistful face of her godmother, Miss Figures. As Miss Figures's soft brown eyes met hers, as her thin arms were stretched out yearningly to meet her, the girl seemed to collapse, mind and body. Kneeling by the side of the only mother she had ever known, she poured out the history of her troublous young life since they parted a brief two years before with sobs and inarticulate cries. Then, suddenly stricken with remorse that she should have heartlessly burdened Miss Figures's already heavily laden life with her woes and wrongs, she begged her pardon for her selfishness. "'You see, I have no one in the world but you,' she asseverated. "'I never had.' Miss Figures was, happily, less sensibly affected by her goddaughter's recital than if she had not had previous visits from the real Andrew Quarles. 
her calm her tenderness were as balm to zoe's wounded pride her sanguine view of future happiness even in this vale of tears fortified zoe's drooping spirits both godmother and godchild failed to notice how minutes passed then hours the entrance of the parlour-maid to lay the table for luncheon astonished them you see i have to be carried down and up again so it saves trouble if i spend my day here said miss figures cheerfully and here is sister dorcas who will take you to your room dorcas was mrs rankin the widowed sister who came bustling in and after one anxious glance at the invalid who was slowly dying of internal disease looked reassured and with a cheerful smile suggested that zoe should see her room your luggage has gone up i am sure you must want your luncheon she said offering to send a maid to unpack which zoe declined she looked gloomily at those wedding trunks as mrs rankin left her to herself wondering how she would nerve herself to go through the wardrobe she had believed to be her marriage trousseau even the delightful bedchamber with its panelled walls and polished floor its white drapery its antique furniture and quaint old pictures failed to please her while those boxes of hers stared her in the face she groaned as she bathed her face and buried it in the delicate lavender-scented towel she sighed a bitter sobbing sigh as she looked out of her casement window at the shrubbery with the green fields and their sleek grazing cows beyond and the light tufts of clouds almost resting on the blue hilltops in the background then she suddenly started the warm blood crimsoned her cheeks she heard her cousin andrew's voice below i had quite forgotten him she told herself gladly for she was annoyed that the mere sound of his voice should bring colour to her cheeks in that fashion what a good thing i shall be able to do without him for the future i must i must lead an anchorite's life here or i shall never forgive myself i have my disgraceful haste in marrying that miserable creature to atone for months years of a strict hard-working life will be necessary to make up for that she felt as coldly virtuous as severely aloof in spirit from the opposite sex as a roman matron as she left her bedroom and went down in obedience to the summons of a gong in the hall what should she say to her cousin in thanks she wondered as she arrived at the quaint old corridor and heard the feminine voices in the dining-room she pictured him as silent from intensity of feeling as he sat watching for her appearance the thought of his love she knew he loved her well enough repelled her she determined to frown upon him in advance lest he should give any sign of caring for her in a manner more than cousinly entering the dining-room slowly she gave a disdainful glance at the table then halted in surprise but one person was seated and at its head carving a chicken with minute care only two covers were laid the chicken carver was mrs rankin ah that's right come and sit here dear she said warmly waving the carving knife towards a high-backed chair at her right i must see after susie first she eats the tiniest bit of breast poor dear a little table was at the invalid's side glancing towards it as the maid carried the little tray with the plate and the glass of claret to the end of the room it seemed to zoe as if everything about her rocked and swayed she was grateful to mrs rankin for being a voluble talker only when the second course of delicate puddings was on the table did she summon courage to inquire for her cousin who seemed as ignored by the two ladies as if he had never been is not my cousin coming to luncheon she asked studying her voice with an effort why my dear surely you know he must have told you that he had to catch the one thirty express 
asked Mrs. Rankin, staring at her in surprise. Zoe, said the invalid, and as she raised her voice to be heard at the other end of the room it sounded shrill and almost querulous. Mr. Quarles did not like to disturb you to say good-bye. He will write to-night, if possible, he said. I was to make his farewells for him. Oh, said Zoe shortly. For the first few minutes the shock of finding herself abandoned by the man she loved, the man to whom she owed her capacity for loving, her knowledge of what love really was, affected her so deeply that she was hardly conscious of her surroundings. She could only fight feebly but desperately against the growing faintness, which brought black shadows before her eyes and caused the horrible singing and buzzing in her ears. As soon as she could evade the tender attentions of the good ladies, who seemed full to the brim of solicitous sympathy, she escaped into the garden. It was a beautiful flower-garden, green with the first spring verdure, bright and sweet with blossoming borders of tender flowers, the infants of the passing year. Birds sang joyously among the lilacs, laburnums, and budding may-trees. Sunbeams seemed playing hide-and-seek about the shrubs and across the lawns, as, far away, above, the majestic white cumuli sailed athwart the blue expanse like stately swans upon a translucent lake. In an access of desperation Zoe saw and noted it all, and felt each detail as a needle touch upon her smarting mental being. She fled along until she reached the end of the grounds, a grass walk bordered by groves of shrubs and ending in a rustic arbour with wicker chairs and table, an ideal and absolutely sequestered retreat. Here, alone, she sank upon a wicker settee and abandoned herself to the blackest of black moods of hopelessness and despair. It seemed to her that in the beautiful, smiling world awakening joyously, riotously, to the abandonment and glory of a renewed life after its winter hibernation, she was the only discordant unit. The scapegoat, she bitterly thought, they are all more or less happy. That wretched man who dared to marry me, and his real wife. Miss Cartwright, because she lives her own life, a peaceful one. These two poor dear things, Godmother and her sister, because they were poor and can enjoy being comparatively rich. Uncle Andrew quarrels, because he is dead. The birds sang, the nestlings twittered, the leaves rustled happily in the spring breeze, but Zoe's soul was dark as night. She, however, would not return to the house until the terrible depression lifted somewhat and by degrees she worked to dispel it until she was able to take a slightly less saturnine view of life in general, and her own in particular. And the means she employed to attain a scrap of contentment were anticipation of her new cousin's promised letter. He will write and explain why he forsook me. He is a man of honour, and oh, he must have a tender as well as a generous heart, or he could not have been so good and dear, she mournfully thought. In the very recollection of his presence there seemed some sort of comfort. She dwelt upon the memory of him hour after hour until evening came, and when she suddenly awakened in the night. Then came morning and the anticipation of his letter. "'When does the post come in, Barton?' she asked of the maid when she brought the hot water and tea. "'At nine? How late?' "'Everything seems late and curious here, Mum, after London,' said the demure Barton as she arranged the tray leisurely on a little table by the bedside. I often wonder how ladies like my mistress and Miss Figures can bear to live in a place of this sort. The church on Sundays is half full of labouring folk, tramping in in those dreadful hobnail boots, 
and them corduroys and a good many come in them well there's not much smell of violets and things about them barton sniffed and departed and zoe slightly distracted by the diversion sprang up dressed and was down in the dining-room before the parlour-maid brought in the silver urn with the air of carrying a victorious trophy followed by a neat housemaid with a butler's tray of breakfast dishes then came the bringing down of miss figures who would not give up her ordinary habits in an invalid carrying chair just as her godmother was being settled on the sofa zoe heard an important ring she started the postman she almost deliriously asked may i go my dear barton will bring the letters in said mrs rankin with slightly surprised dignity and the girl had to endure her fingers clenched her teeth set while the unconscious parlour-maid retired with graceful slowness into the hall and after what seemed a protracted parleying with a gruff-voiced personage at the door returned with letters on a salver which she presented to her mistress who scanned them short-sightedly and doled them out five were for miss figures her pupils seemed to remember her now zoe recognised some handwritings familiar in school days as mrs rankin placed them in a row on the tablecloth one was left its face downward that is for me cried zoe impatiently i am sure it is no said mrs rankin with a calm which was maddening to zoe peering at the address mrs rankin it is for me oh i see care of mrs rankin zoe took it with trembling fingers and was about to open it when she caught sight of the words very private be quite alone to read this was that a good or a bad omen in regard to its contents she asked herself as she thrust it into her pocket and nerved herself to be patient during the slow breakfast hour as soon as she could escape without exciting comment she sped into the grounds End of chapter 20